That's a great question. Here's my hot take. <laughs> if you are worried about your space becoming diverse, that means that you know in your heart that once they bring in that diverse talent, you don't measure up. One of my friends that I actually met on Twitter, her name is Astronaya. She said that there was a white man who came up to her and said, you know, the reason why you're here is because we need more black women and kind of left it at that. And I went on a tangent. I had, I had to go off on Twitter and talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> and I said, listen, this white man understands two things. One, he understands that not only is Naya qualified to do what she is doing, <laughs> but she also brings a completely new perspective to the room to the table that can probably overshadow whatever he thought was good. So I think there is a self-awareness in addressing, like when people say you only got in because you're black or you only got in because of fill in the blank. What they're acknowledging that you not, you're not seeing because you're kind of, you know, trying to dismiss what they just said is that they're deficient in their own way. They know that part of their identity is why they're here today. They know that part of their identity is what has gotten them to this level. And so they're afraid that you're going to threaten that part of their identity that helped them get to where they are. They're afraid that by allowing you in the room, that's somehow going to dim their shine. And if that's going to dim their shine, then they probably had no shine to begin with, quite frankly. Right. A person who understands their worth is not threatened by another person who enters the room. That's just a fact. Well, that was good. I got chills. <laughs> no, that was so good. I feel like I'm going to even you know make, what I'm like, saying? Yeah, honestly, I feel like I'm going to make a sound bite out of just that. Like, you know what I'm saying? Because, like, honestly, like, that's so, that's such a perfect response. The only reason you would say that and the only reason you would, you would believe it is because deep down you recognize within yourself that because of the privilege right. you have, because of the way you look or your religion or your wealth or your whatever status because you were able to access certain parts of society because of those things you were more palatable to the mm -hmm. to the greater powers that be because you know that the, it wasn't a complete meritocracy part of it is just like oh i trust you you're white right. of course you know i can you know, part of it right. was that <laughs> it's because you know that that that's why you're threatened that about diversity and inclusion because it's like then they're their being there shows that the world is becoming more equal more fair and including more people right. and so like you're threatened that your privilege your power is going to become destabilized by that absolutely i i remember when i was in high school i, I love to shake the table by the way so that's just a, a, a attribute of me and i shook the table in my high school and i did my final my senior thesis on racism in private schools. And I remember my advisor told me something so like chef's kiss. She said, white people are afraid to acknowledge that their whiteness is why they are where they are. And the moment you show them the mirror that reflects that back at them, they deflect. That is truly what we see in spaces that don't want to diversify. You want to hire people who look like you because you make a presumption that because they look like you, they must think like you. Then they're going to reinforce what you think and pretty much you will live on in those people. But the moment somebody who doesn't look like you comes into the room, 
it's a lot harder for you to connect to that person. It's a lot harder for you to, to try to reinforce what you think in that person. Because there are experiences that differentiate that person from you. And so in my, in my experience, you have these people who are afraid of, of losing power. And so when you come in the room, you are threatening their power because in their, in their head, their power is how do I maintain my status in this room? How do I maintain my position in this room? How do I maintain my thinking through my pupils? There was a study that I recently read at the summer program that I'm at currently. And what they saw was that um, if you change the race and gender by the names, this is like one of those name audit studies to student of students who are interested in research opportunities for PhDs and stuff. I'm in the academy. As you can imagine, the minorities didn't get any callbacks. Right. But what was even more interesting was that they weren't getting callbacks from minority professors. Listen. The truth is. All it takes is one to disrupt everything. When I tell you that the Sadie Collective and the Sadie Alexander Conference was disruptive, nobody saw us coming. All of a sudden, we just announced, hey, there's going to be a conference for black women. And when I say that, people were like, huh? <laughs> what? Even people who looked like us, kinfolk, didn't believe that we could pull it off. <laughs> You know, like it, you know, I'm thinking about it, and wow, I they just didn't think we could do it. They're like, "Are y'all sure y'all can pull it off? You have to pull it off." We have people talking to us about, "Are you sure you have everything in check? Are you sure this is what you really guys want to really do? How are you guys gonna get a hundred black women in the room? Not only did we get a hundred black women in the room, we got more than a hundred. And we are looking to double, nearly triple the size of our original conference. And we have institutional partners now. Let me tell you something. It takes one. In, in our case, it took, it took only seven. Seven of us to say, we're going to disrupt it, the system. We're going to disrupt it. And, and, and that's really what it comes down to, the power. You, want, you can maintain the power that, it may, you know, you can maintain the structures that exist or you can disrupt them. I think at this point, <laughs> whether or not I get an economics PG or not, but I mean, I'm, I'm, my eyes there, but you know, anything can happen in life. The economics profession sees me as a disruptor. <laughs> I have not come to play by the rules here. I'm looking at the, the, the system and I'm like, all right, yeah, let's go ahead and, and fix that. Or, you know, all right, break that down. I'm not, I'm not here to, you know, play by the rules. And I think the people who are not playing by the rules are the ones who make the biggest impact. And we can look at history and see that. Nelson Mandela didn't play by the rules. Oprah Winfrey didn't play by the rules. I forgot her last name, but Kathleen, fill in the blank at Hidden Figures. <laughs> at NASA, and her friends, Dorothy Vaughn and all those folks, they didn't play by the rules. They disrupted the powers that were, and now we hear about them today. And guess what? By disrupting the structure, the system, 
that causes a ripple effect for generations. There are now young black girls who want to go to space because of the movie Hidden Figures. A lot of African leaders, asterisk good ones, <laughs> cite Nelson Mandela's dedication to South Africa's freedom as inspiration for their leadership. You know what I'm saying? So that, that's all to say. Not to say that these people were perfect, by the way, but they disrupted the system that exists. And so ultimately, it's power. Yeah, no, I mean that... I feel like I've been rapping. <laughs> no, that makes so much sense. I mean, even this idea of being disruptive, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about how you had a teacher who was like, Anna, you're disruptive. And then another teacher on the flip side was like, one day right. you're going to make for a wow. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, and the thing you that's see that? funny is, hmm. oh, sorry, you were going to say something? No, 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 continue. I'm just, yeah. I'm just uh, ad-libbing. Yeah, the, th <laughs> the thing that's funny is that like, even the educational system in the United States was built on a factory model where they're trying to train people to follow a schedule and be obedient and be subservient. And so right. like, the idea of right. calling someone in a setting like that, based off a setting like that, the idea of calling them disruptive, it's almost like this horrible, funny irony in it because it's like, well, do, do I want to be not disruptive in a system that's built for me to be, you know, falling into the status quo and not questioning authority and producing the greatest economic output or whatever output like the teacher who called you disruptive doesn't even realize the irony of what she said or what he said that it's like right. i would want someone to be disruptive mm -hmm. in that setting because that means to me it's a potential sign of them going out into society and disrupting systems that are broken right like a lot of people say the education system is yeah. broken that you sort of just treat everyone the same right people's strengths and weaknesses, you sort of have to not really customize or individualize education, different faults that the U.S. education system has. Even around 50 years ago, Finland was ranked the same or similar to the U.S. in education worldwide, but now Finland is number one in the mm -hmm. world, you know, with regards to education. Why, why, right. why would I want to be someone who you view as accommodating in the system? Of course I would want to be someone you view as disruptive. That means like I'm on the right track, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. Quite literally. Yeah. The white people who are for diversity and inclusion, they're actually the ones who are very likely benefiting from it because a lot of research has come out recently about how being in diverse teams increases innovation. Even one study of 306 public companies, like they, these companies are public, they did a survey of 366 public companies and they found that the most racially diverse had the greatest chances of yielding the highest economic returns above nationwide industry medians. People who are for diversity and inclusion, they're probably like in their companies, in their workplaces benefiting from being diverse because it's like a lot of, a whole body of research is showing the benefits. Even another study, the, the individuals who had more diverse connections at work they generated ideas that management perceived as higher quality than the ones who had less diverse connections, right? Like, can you believe that? So like right. the people who are right. against diversity and inclusion, it doesn't, it's like they're shooting themselves in their own feet. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, and it's like, mm -hmm. they kind of deserve it because you are so hungry for power and like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, so. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it is. Also it's Katherine Johnson, by the way. I don't know why I forgot her last name. <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah, you're shooting yourself in the foot. 
you look dumb. And as Monique would say, when you do clownery, the clownery indeed bites back. And so with that in mind, you know, you can pretend like diversity is not critical to the success of the field that you're in or the business that you work in or the community that you are a part of, but time will tell and we'll see how well that ages. And that's really what you're starting to see now with certain companies that are being lambasted in the media for not being diverse. They thought they could get away with it. They're not going to be able to get away with it in the next five, 10 years. Someone somewhere is going to pick it apart and they're going to have to make those decisions. But again, it's one thing to diversify, which we're starting to see more people do. It's another thing to be inclusive, right? To be cognizant of what diversity actually means. It does not mean that you allow another Black face in the room. It means you acknowledge their personhood. You acknowledge, acknowledge the challenges that they face. You acknowledge what they can bring to the table. And you respect it the same level that you respect any other person's um, ideas and perspectives. I think that inclusion part is what academia and the business world and the tech world, you know, mainly these professional spaces are missing. They, they love to boast about how diverse their spaces are. You will see it often on university pamphlets. They'll post the only three black students in the entire university on their pamphlet and say, you know, our, our numbers are good. <laughs> no, it's not. Why are you lying? They, they have to come to the school at some point. So you can't be lying to them right there. I think that's also a part of it, right? People don't acknowledge that they have a diversity problem because then that opens up a can of worms that they refuse to, to really grapple with. You know, a, a place like Georgetown, for example, is starting to grapple with its racist history where a lot, I think its founders were slave owners or something like that. Um, and there was a lot of buildings named after slave owners and racist individuals. And now they're thinking about giving reparations to descendants of slaves. I think they actually, like the student body just approved that. So, you know, you can, sorry, you can run, but you can't hide. And a lot of people have been running for a long time. But, you know, like any good game of hide and go seek, we find you eventually. We gonna find you. So like, you know, you just have to be cognizant of that and, and also be um, aware that it's, it's not just diversity. It's diversity and inclusion. And that inclusive aspect really comes from developing your emotional intelligence and being aware of the people that you are now inviting into the space. Yeah, so what you're saying, even I saw research saying by, 20, by 2050, white people will no longer be the majority in the United States. So like what you're saying about how, right. you know what I'm saying? Like what you're saying about how like if you're not found out now, like more, the pressure is rising. Like if you're not for diversity and inclusion now, like more and more people are going to become demanding for that. Some people have this thing against diversity and it's this concept called diversity of thought. They say, well, having this superficial face level diversity of like one Latino, one black person, one this, one that, their position is that is meaningless and shallow. You need to have diversity of thought. What would you say to someone who thinks like that? I think that you can have having diversity of thought 
and having diversity in the sense of identity are not two mutually exclusive things. They can exist in the same space and they should exist in the same space. And I think that when you are coming from different experiences, that diversity of thought is inevitable, right? You went to Princeton, I went to UMBC. So my perspective is about, you know, the collegiate experience is from the perspective of someone who went to a public university versus you who went to an elite private university. And I think if we were to talk about, you know, what we expect from the higher education system, we might have some differing opinions. But ultimately, like I said before, because we have different ideas about, um, you know, what what our thought process is concerning that, the best idea will eventually arise. The idea that works best for everybody will eventually arise out of that discussion. And so I think diversity of thought is great. Um, Diversity of thought can be reflected in a a lot of different ways, but having actual diversity in terms of your identity begets diversity of thought, almost always. There are some instances, obviously, where people will be underrepresented minorities and they'll go through the same system as you know, privileged white males or white folks, um, and they'll have very similar thought processes. Sure. But at the end of the day, you know, their life experiences, the things that they're seeing through their lens are still going to shape their perspective in a way that will be different from their white counterparts. And so, yeah, that's sort of my hot take on that. I think it's important to have both. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think one of the most efficient ways, if not the most efficient way to increase diversity of thought is to increase diversity period, right? Because when you increase diversity period, you choose from low income backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses, different races. When you choose from these different groups in society, I feel like that's one of the most efficient ways, one of the fastest ways to get the diversity of thought. Like, do you think you're just going to go into like a homogenous group and like, I feel like it would be harder for you to find the diversity of thought if you went that route. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about how even as young as K through 12, Black students are getting the message that their abilities are less. The research about how Black girls are disciplined more and they receive harsher penalties for the same offenses in the education system. So we talked about how there's a disparity there. And then even in the field of economics compared to STEM, you're now in a program where they're preparing you for a PhD program where, like, can you explain a little bit about your educational status now? Yeah, sure. So I recently graduated from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County with a bachelor's of arts in mathematics and a minor in economics. As of the summer, which is right now, I am in the American Economic Association's summer program for minority students. And so the program is sort of a economics boot camp. Currently, I'm taking four classes as well as conducting research. <laughs> so you can only imagine yeah. <laughs> what that looks like for eight weeks. <laughs> um, but thankfully, I have a really amazing cohort of scholars and peers and TAs who are really dedicated to our successes. So that's been really encouraging. Starting in the fall, I'll be in the Harvard Research Scholar Initiative Program, 
and they have two tracks. They have one for economics and they have one for life science. And obviously I'm going to be doing the one for economics. And there I'll be actually conducting research alongside a, a really great mentor, Dr. Peter Q. Blair. He's an assistant professor at the School of Education, which is currently headed by the first Black dean ever, which is Dr. Bridget Terry Long. She's someone who's worked really closely with um, President Obama on education matters. And so Dr. Blair and I are going to be working on a research project for the next two years. Can't really say too much about it, um, but I'm really excited. (laughs) And I will also be taking sort of graduate level coursework and you know, just kind of getting better acclimated to the Cambridge area, which is sort of an epicenter for economists and learning more about the profession up there. And then hopefully next year I'll start applying for PhD programs. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I know. It hits yeah. you. Like, it hits and, you uh, it is. <laughs> right. I just think about it, like, oh, wow, that's really happening. Yeah. Um, and so the, the hope is to apply to a broad spectrum of PhD programs in economics. So they have you know, this is sort of, again, going back to the idea of economics as a broad field. So they have more PhDs that are more policy focused versus business. And obviously there's a house in those respective departments. And they have like traditional economic PhDs that are housed in economics departments. And so I'll probably be applying to a wide array of those and seeing where I land. But yeah, and then I'm also doing things on the side, like the Sadie Collective, which is something that I am really passionate about. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I'm wondering, is there a specific field in economics you plan to enter? Because it seems like you're very passionate about diversity and inclusion. So is there a specific field that you want to enter that would impact that directly or indirectly? Yeah, that's a great question. I am very passionate about labor economics. And I got really interested in this field when I learned about what human capital was. And so for those who don't know, human capital is pretty much the accumulation of skills and knowledge. And I learned about it in my macroeconomics class. And I really like the way that my teacher phrased it. She pretty much said that, you know, it's really important that when you're thinking about development of any country, that human capital is sort of at the center of it. And I decided to do a summer research project at the University of Maryland College Park. And I worked with an incredible mentor, of mine, Dr. Judy Hellerstein. She's a really well-known labor economist. And I that's sort of the when I ended up getting really interested in it based on our project. So since then, labor has been something I couldn't, I haven't been able to shake off. I really, really love asking questions about, by the way, labor economics is about education and unemployment and things that deal with people's well-being and the way that they make a living. And I, I'm just fascinated by that because I feel like, for me, I'm really interested in understanding why Black people can't make a living at the level of white people. I really want to parse that out um, at every level and in every sort of um, main area that Black people live in. So the United States, Sub-Saharan Africa, Caribbean, because it affects us pretty much everywhere. And... I thought I was passionate about development economics, which is pretty much just economics in a developing country. But I did a project on Ghana this past uh, year. I was looking at the effect of early childhood malaria on sort of school progression in Ghana. 
And I mean, it was fun, but I realized that, you know, finding data from sub-Saharan Africa is <laughs> it's like, it's like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. <laughs> it's so hard. And so uh, with that in mind, I don't know if I'll be going into development, but it's too soon to tell, honestly. They say when you get into a doctoral program, it's really dependent upon the mentors that you end up clicking with, as well as the classes that you take. So. I'm going to wait till then to say that I'm completely committed to something, but I know for a fact that I really like labor. Yeah. <laughs> I guess what, what would be your one main selling point for someone who's heard this conversation is considering pursuing economics, but they're not sure, you know, what that would mean for their future. Like what is one, you know, last selling point you have for them? Economics allows you to study whatever you want, whenever you want, for a very, very good pay. (laughs) So you can study whatever relationship that you want to study, and you can do it in a way that is rigorous and interesting, not only to you, but to the people that are going to be impacted by um, the topic that you decide to look into. So I think that it's important that you pursue that passion and you pursue it fully. And there's communities, if you're a person of color, um, specifically an underrepresented minority, Latinx, Black, Native American, there are communities that are in the profession that want to see you succeed. So despite what discouragement people might have given you, just know that you can do it and I'm rooting for you myself. So, yeah. That's what I would say. <laughs> so I guess I want to push a little further on one part of what you said. What do you mean by good pay? Yeah. Good pay. Economists, the, the, I would say the lowest paying economists get paid maybe 90 grand a year. Lowest paying. And people consider becoming a professor in economics sort of taking a pay cut. Because the truth is economics gives you a really awesome toolkit that allows you to study any issue at a very deep level that is related to that toolkit. And you can even manipulate that toolkit to some degree, right? There are people who have taken what they learned in economics and made it better through like machine learning or something like that. But people really want those skills. Those skills are in high demand and they've been in high demand for a while. And you can make a lot of money in the private sector and in the public sector. If you want to work in policy, you can make a lot of money. So a lot of economists will be hired as senior policy experts or they'll work for the White House or they'll work in businesses and firms or nonprofits. So your skills are needed everywhere and therefore people are willing to pay for it. Yeah. So it's it may be a bit of a selfish question given my background, but so Princeton okay. <laughs> Princeton University recently added a requirement for culture and difference classes. Now everyone's required to take this culture and difference requirement. And the dean of the college, Jill Dolan, she said that we're becoming less and less adept at understanding people's cultural differences. She literally said verbatim, we have become Mm -hmm. less and less adept at handling our cultural differences. And so the faculty voted for this to pass, and now it's a requirement. What do you think of this? Class can only do so much, right? I think 
part of it is I, I know what they're trying to do. Um, it's what a lot of liberal arts colleges do. They require certain classes so their students can become more, quote unquote, culturally aware. But I think at the end of the day, it is up to the individual to decide whether or not they are going to be willing to listen to the perspectives of people that don't look like them or act like them or have different beliefs and to consider those perspectives seriously. Um, you can take all the diversity training in the world and still be a racist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what people, I mean, people just don't know that. Uh, you can go ahead and make that sound bite because yeah. I really think don't, don't call a black person the N-word. Like, we, that obviously, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's not enough. But because at the end of the day, it's a mentality thing. So, I mean, that's a great first start, but they can't end there. They have to take it one step further. Yeah, yeah. I think you're so right. It comes down to the individual and what you said, like, you could take all the diversity training in the world and still be a racist. <laughs> Um, I feel like that's so because <laughs> um, I feel like so many of us know people like in our workplaces or in our lives we saw them mm-hmm. sit through the diversity training but they still have something to say like some micro you know what I'm saying like they still have comments or attitudes right. that are clearly antithetical to what the trainings taught you and yet you're still holding these, you right. know what I'm saying so um, you know I feel right. like that's really important. yeah I, I had an advisor tell me this was an advisor told me that I couldn't do a PhD in economics. He actually told me multiple times that I couldn't do it. And so, you know, what I heard from, I won't say from the administration, but from leadership, you know, we're just going to do some more diversity training. And I was like, this guy has a fundamental, I don't think he believes that these students can be successful, students who look like me. I think you need to have a conversation as to why he doesn't believe that. Where is that coming from? But people think diversity training is enough. It's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Clearly, you're a black female student. You're Ghanaian. Like, it's so obvious. Like, if you were not any of those identities, I don't feel that he would be saying that. You know, if you were a white male, a white male. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because um, uh, I've never heard anyone tell a white male, oh, I don't think you can pursue a PhD in economics. Can you handle that? Like, I've never heard that in my life. Right. So. <laughs> This has been a very important discussion. So now I want to become super shallow and superficial and ask you about your Twitter journey, right? Because that's how I found you is through Twitter, where you were flexing, I think, in a pic about, and I was like, wow, this is awesome. So Yes. So I joined Twitter. I rejoined Twitter last August. And it was because my mentor, Cindy Lilla, as I mentioned before, told me that I was missing a lot of information not being on Twitter. I said, you know, I had left social media for personal reasons, uh, mainly because I was becoming more vain. I was getting upset that I wasn't getting likes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I need to get off this website. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a smart decision. Anyway, I have my, my rocket tweets, but I don't tweet those. I retweet them or I like them. <laughs> you know? But I, you won't catch them on my timeline. And so someone like Derek Hamilton, I never thought I'd ever be in a, in, a, in a place where I could actually talk to him and feel like I could call him, have his number on my phone. I feel like I can call him at any point. And my relationships with those who I previously knew 
I've deepened, right? Because they now know what my viewpoints on certain things. And then I would say with the creation of the Sadie Collective, that brought a lot of visibility to my Twitter page because I'm the CEO, I'm one of the co-founders. People want to know more about that, you know, especially people who, like you were saying before, are interested in diversifying their own spaces. And so I've been in this position where I have way more visibility than the average student going into grad school or thinking about going. So, you know, I, I have literally gone to, I came to like the summer program I'm going to, going to right now. A couple people have talked to me and said, hey, I follow you on Twitter, like my TAs. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking at them like, oh, <laughs> okay. I've gone to, you know, I've been to the economic conference and I have, you know, grown people with PhDs, with experience saying, hey, aren't you Saffronomics on Twitter? And it's like, you don't realize how much power and influence you have until you're in a space like, you know what I'm saying? So I think for me, my, my, my journey has allowed me to see that people really care about what I have to say. And I think the role that I'm going to play in how this, per, how this profession develops in the next decade or so is going to be more significant than I could have possibly anticipated. And so I'm just using Twitter as a vehicle to voice my thoughts and to bring attention to people and issues that I care about. I oftentimes will, for example, for Black History Month, I spent the most of the month, majority of the month, just featuring Black economists in their work and just threatifying their research. And they really, really appreciated it. And some of them were saying, like, thanks so much for amplifying my work. Like, you have a huge reach. And it's just like, I'm just a student. I'm, I'm learning from you. Yeah. <laughs> but it turns out that <laughs> it turns out that when you have that kind of access to people, you know, you can do a lot of good. And that's really what I'm trying to do through my Twitter experience. Obviously, I have peers who, <laughs> who don't tweet about economics things mostly. And, you know, that's totally fine as well. But I'm now in a place where my peers are not asking me, you know, how do I use Twitter to my advantage? How do I gain access to opportunities and professors through this space? And I'm very willing to share that. I actually co-led um, a Twitter workshop at my summer program in the first week with the director of the program, who was my mentor, Dr. Lisa D. Cook. And we talked about the goods and the good and the bad of Twitter. And um, it was really great. And a lot of my peers were really appreciative that we did that. And they've been telling me like, hey, like, you know, help me set up my Twitter. Uh, one of my friends is going to uh, Scotland for the semester. And she was like, you know, how do I find a professor? And I said, well, put it on Twitter. She said, is that really going to work? And I said, absolutely. And she did. And it worked. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, it's just about how to use that space and how you intend to use it. If you have intention behind what you're saying, people will respond. Yeah, I mean, that's really, so I guess on that note, what would you say is the most useful piece of advice for someone seeking to create that professional network on Twitter? Engage. You never know who you will end up talking to if you engage. There is a really well-known sociologist. You might know her. Her name is Dr. Tressie McMillan Cotton. She wrote Thick 
and she wrote Laura Ed, and she's been featured in the Daily Show a couple of times. I engaged with her Twitter, even though she's not following me. And recently, I sent her a message in her DMs, and I said, direct messages, by the way, hey, I really love what you do and what you talk about, and I would just like to have a conversation with you. And so we had a conversation, and we're going to have another conversation next week. And she just was downloading so much wisdom into me. I literally could not contain it. I had chills, like, the entire time. And so you just never know who you can get in contact with unless you engage those folks. And they're almost always willing to respond to you as long as it's a productive sort of conversation that you're having. Um, And I think also being intentional about what you say, right? When you are on Twitter, don't tweet something out of pocket. (laughs) You want to be wise about what you're saying and you want to be tactful as well. And so it's just really important that you, because the truth is when you put it out there, it's not coming back. It's not a boomerang. It's, it's out there and people will take screenshots and stuff like that and will tweet you and, you know, like you just have to be very wise about that. Especially if you are not somebody in a position of power because those words can be very easily used against you um, in a way that, you know, if you're trying to get up, like, like let's say if you're trying to become a professor in the field, you don't want to be like, all oh, professors are trash. Because, like, obviously, that's not going to benefit you when you're trying to get tenured. So, like, yeah, just be wise about that. That would be my advice. Yeah, I mean, this has been such a great conversation. You're already disrupting (laughs) the power structures, and you're not even at the PhD level. So I can only imagine once you get there, you know, what, what you would do for the field of economics and for diversity and inclusion. So thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. This was an amazing opportunity, and I'm so glad we had this conversation. Yeah, yeah. And thank you again for uh, telling us about the Sadie Collective, because I think that's such an incredible organization, and it's so amazing. It's so needed. <laughs> it's, it's almost one of those groups where you're just thinking, like, how come, yeah, yeah exactly, it. space for black for black people or I black women. No idea. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, I have no idea. And that's something that, like, when we were originally thinking about it, Fanta and I, we were kind of just, they, we ha- there's an adjacent organization, but it's not doing exactly what we're doing. So we focus more on like the pipeline of Black women. And then there's one that is more focused on helping African women from outside of the country get opportunities in the United States. And the, I don't remember what they're called exactly, but it's like triple A-W-E. And that is headed by another Ghanaian. I didn't even realize wow. that. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, her name is Dr. Elizabeth Adu. So, yeah, that's crazy. I just realized that she's also Ghanaian. So, yeah, um, you know, we out here doing it. Ghana Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for having me. You know what's really amazing? The number of people I've spoken to in college and who've already left college who've told me 
who've told me they didn't know everything they learned about their colleges until they got there. One person even told me that their college didn't even allow them to look at the dorms before they started going to school there. Another told me, a tour guide told him, they're deceiving you. This was at the school that he went to. Me, myself, there was so much I learned about Princeton before going and it was only after being there for a year two years three years four years five years because I worked there for a year that I realized there's so much more that no one told me before I started and so that's what Skivio is for it's for people who don't want to be tricked basically (laughs) before they spend so much time and money, energy, and effort into a place. Who would rather have the insider's view before becoming an insider when it's too late and the only options you have left are to stay, transfer, or drop out. One statistic shows the transfer rate is 38.5%. That's almost 40% of people who say, oh, I don't want to be here anymore. Scavio is for that group of people. It's for people who realize who realize the traps of Google and YouTube. Why is it that so many YouTubers fail to reveal the academic sides of their college experiences? And how do you know that information is current or relevant to you or biased? So what is Skivio? Skivio is, or would be, a technology-enabled mentoring platform on which students like you could connect with those already attending the universities they're interested in. They could show you that dorm room that you could be living in when you're a sophomore, or they could show you how hard that molecular biology class is going to be when you're a junior. Maybe you just need to go over your application with someone who's actually attending the school you're applying to. They could show you all the things that some people just don't have the time or the foresight to share with other people. And they could show you that in real time. That's Givio. While I was fortunate to have been accepted to every college and university to which I applied in high school, except Harvard where I was waitlisted, And while I'm someone who's been in Ivy League institutions twice, Princeton and the University of Pennsylvania, though I recognize that I was qualified to be there given my stats, I also recognize that someone else easily could have been in my place. So Scivio also seeks to be a network in which students who could have been in my place can still connect to and reap the benefits of being a part of the Ivy League. Scivio currently has mentors who've been accepted to the Yale School of Medicine, the NYU School of Medicine, Princeton University, Johns Hopkins, University of Chicago, the University of Pennsylvania. 
I hope to expand that network. I hope to accomplish this through this crowdfunding campaign. Skivio essentially seeks to make the network or networks-based culture of college admissions and job applications, right, after college, more equitable. Why should power be concentrated in the hands of those whose places were almost interchangeable?